My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. I'm Joe Devine and welcome to Whiteboard Football Extra. A quick plea before we begin. If you're listening to the podcast via iTunes or if you're subscribed, um, if you have a spare moment, we'd really appreciate it if you can rate the podcast and leave a little comment on the iTunes client. Um, it really helps us reach new listeners. So if you have a, you know, if you can spare the time and you feel inclined to do so, that would be superb. Today, I'm joined by Paul and Sorge to talk about the 1998 World Cup. Uh, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Throughout the video, uh, Paul, you refer to the fact that the World Cup was a unifying event for the French people. For those of us, including myself, not so familiar uh, with our late 90s French history, can you tell us a little bit more about the backdrop of the tournament, um, socially speaking, and what, why, why you felt it was important to note this? Well, um, this was something that was very distinctly in the ether in the late 90s in France. Well, from the mid-90s on, uh, France has a fascinating history with multiculturalism and um, I'm I'm not an expert on French multicultural sociology, but um, there is a there is a kind of distinct difference in the public discourse in France and there is in England in terms of um, identity and Frenchness and the way that was approached. And in 1995, this this took a pretty dark turn when the National Front, um, the Front National, in in France, led by uh, Jean Marie Le Pen who is Marine Le Pen's father, um, won 15% in the first round of a presidential election. So the way French elections work is you have loads of candidates and they uh, run off against each other in the first round and then the two with the most votes um, in that round uh, fight off uh, against each other in the second round. And this was the first time um, a Front National candidate had got to the second round of voting. He was roundly defeated but it was still kind of um part of an ugly rise of of nationalism in france and well, not so much rise but just kind of um rearing yeah what's there's a word that i'm trying to think of that like a crystallization of it basically mm. um and then uh this was kind of rejected by the french people but obviously there's a big strain of it in french culture and the French national team was at the centre of this in a lot of ways because, you know, Le Pen would question the Frenchness of players from African backgrounds or um, Arab backgrounds, and it became a huge issue. I, I, I mentioned this documentary in the in the video, but if you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix, um, so it's, it's widely available, a documentary called Les Bleus, uh, Une autre histoire de France, which is... Um, a fantastic analysis of mm. the French national team and their role in society from 
the mid 90s to today um, and that that if you're interested in this subject that will give you a lot more detail and background on it what happened in the 98 world cup was because the team was so representative of multicultural france um, it became a kind of flashpoint and a catalyst for the coming together of people from different walks of life. So Zidane, who had been the kind of poster child of the National Front's attacks on uh, the non-Frenchness of this side because he was from an Algerian background, had his face um, uh, projected onto the Champs-Élysées and the entire Champs-Élysées, which, which people describe as having been fuller than it had been since Liberation Day, um, which was when the Paris was liberated from the Germans in the 40s. Um, and that, that whole crowd were chanting Zizou pour président, Zizou président, you know, um, and it was it was a, a sea change. Of course, what the the documentary Les Bleus is, is about really is how that did not last. Mm. Um, but in that moment, it was something really special. And yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting you said that. I quite uh, one of the reasons I've enjoyed the um, World Cup series is to take a look at uh, the the backdrop of each tournament and how there are sort of peaks and troughs of things like this and social disorder. And they're obviously, as you, you know, uh, allude to at the beginning of, of, of what you were saying there, Paul, there are, you know, some similarities in France now, or at least there were before the most recent French uh, presidential election. Um, and I think it's very interesting about football as well, that that can either, and depending on the circumstances, that can either fuel whatever's happening uh, in the social backdrop or it can kind of transcend it. And in this case, it seems to have transcended it. A, a, you know, a very large group of people uh, who might have uh, alternative viewpoints at, at certain times, I suppose they're, as you described them, they're, they're kind of unified in a moment of joy and none of those things really seem to matter anymore. That's quite a sweet image. Oh, yeah, it was really profound. It was just uh, very transient, very fleeting. Mm. Uh, from your writing, it, it's obvious that that this World Cup was particularly special to you? Is it just for the, the reasons that we've already discussed or is there something you know that stands out to you personally about France 98? Uh, no, this is a totally personal thing. Um, my mum is French, so the the French national team of, were always my, my second team um, in international football. Uh, and so them winning the tournament was like, I don't know, it was just, it was, it was an incredible thing because, you know... Um, as I was like in that tournament, I, England went out pretty soon and were their kind of standard at that time standards kind of heroic failures. That was that was the the mould in which England fitted at that point. Mm. They, they then just they dropped the heroic part in the later part of the, in like in the two thousands and twenty tens. Um, but then that that was kind of England's heroic failure. And then but the story of the France team in that World Cup was just, it was just mesmerising because they were, they were such a team, you know, it was so clear that they, they, they forged into a kind of really incredible, a unit that was greater than the sum of their parts, not that the sum of their parts was too shabby, but especially the final when, you know, Brazil were like heavy favourites at that point. And I remember I had a conversation with a friend of mine um, who is now my podcast co-host, in fact, uh, before the semi-final, and uh, uh, France, France didn't really have a striker in that tournament, mm. and Croatia were like on fire. And uh, and Ed was saying, "Where where are the goals going to come from?" 
And, you know, like, mm, oh, no, it's a good question because France was so defensively solid, but it wasn't clear where the goals were going to come from. And in the end, the goals came from Lilian Turin, mm. which it, I don't know if you read uh, Musa Kwanga's column on you, Maxit Joe, but it's, yeah. uh, it's fantastic and well worth a read. Like, I think actually, that's... actually might be being turned into a video. Uh, oh, wonderful! Or a, a couple of a couple of Moose's pieces uh, might be might be available on the YouTube channel at some point in the future. Fantastic! Oh, and I wouldn't don't wait, ladies and gentlemen. Go out and uh, go out and read them because they're they're well worth a read. Umaxit dot com. <laughs> Thank you. Good plug. Um, Thank you, Paul. But I think I think Musa said that uh, Turam scored like fifteen percent of his career goals in a World Cup semi final, which that's that's pretty amazing. Anyway, I'm I'm rambling because I, I just I loved that team. I loved Zidane. I loved what he represented mm. um, about France. Uh, but of course, I loved what he represented about football too. And that ninety eight was you know he was well known before ninety eight, but that was his coming out party in a lot of ways. That was like the, the moment he began to stride. Across the world stage, I love Zidane as as well, and I, one of the reasons for this, and it might sound like I'm joking, but I'm you know only slightly, is his hair, uh, because I have uh, a lot of admiration for a man who seems to to care nothing for uh, for his 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 balding head, and particularly when he, he plays in front of you know fifty thousand people every week and is a, a sort of global superstar. And uh, I'm a big fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm. So ever since I've <laughs> watched Larry David and how passionately he talks about bald men, uh, I see them in a different way. And I think, hey, we've got Ronaldo now with, you know, the, that. And we've got Messi with the sometimes blonde. Zidane was a sort of true captain of, of, of being bald. And that's, um, that's always impressed me. And his head was like really fundamental to his relationship with the World Cup as well. Well, like, clearly. Both of his goals in the final were headers from mm. corners mm. and um and of course like 2006 Zidane's head is like the iconic we're not doing a 2006 one for for this series of of um, no, we aren't. of videos but if we eventually do it will heavily feature Zidane's head it will actually uh it Alex's uh tactics episode does feature 2006 so there's a bit of there's a bit of head in there um but uh yeah anyway I'm gonna ask you the sort of cliched question uh I'm sure the answer is more complicated than I would like it to be. But uh, uh, when England play France, what, what's your start? I didn't intend that to rhyme, Paul, but it does rhyme. When England play France, what's your stance? Well, it was not so much later that England did play France. I think it was in Euro 2006, maybe, or maybe it was the World Cup 2002. Mm-hmm. Um I am I'm very neutral in that game. Honestly, mm. I tend to this is like I don't know some people would get very affronted by this because national identity is so important to them that that would tend to me to just be like which team do I prefer at that point, you know, right. which which of set players, of players, yeah. yeah. Like especially like how many United players are in each team, but sure. anyway, there's, there's always plenty, isn't there? Uh, yeah. Um that's interesting we you say that about the national identity thing. I watched uh, Room 101 the other day for the first time ever. And right. uh, Gabby Logan was on, yeah. and one of the things that she put in, or asked to put in the the room, uh, was half and half scarves. Yeah, uh, which is fine. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really care. But her reason for that was because you have to sort of pick a side and stick with it. And if you're not passionate and competitive, then you don't belong in sport. And I sort of felt like that. That's 
definitely not the only viewpoint to take and uh, was also really irresponsible of uh, Gabby Logan. <laughs> I don't do. think I don't think it was irresponsible. I just I just don't agree. I I, I think that uh, that is, you know either leads to or is already part of tribalism, and uh, I have a massive problem with with that that sort of description of how people should be in and around sport. I, I think it's absolutely fine, as you said, to kind of be a neutral and watch a game and enjoy sport. Uh, and you can still be, you know, you can still support a team and you can, you can, it's obviously, it's always nice to feel that competitive edge. And I don't, I don't dispute for a second that that can uh, improve uh, or sort of enhance people's enjoyment of watching sport. But the way she described it to me just felt like she was saying that, you know, what are you doing here if you're not a diehard uh, fan I mean, for one club? It just doesn't, doesn't ring with me. I mean, the, the thing is, it's a nonsense argument, but not for that reason, I think. I think it's it's a complete misunderstanding to think that a half-and-half half scarf is representative of support for both teams, because it absolutely isn't. Mm. A half-and-half half scarf is only a souvenir of a day. That's why people buy them. It's yeah. not, it isn't because they're like, oh, I like Liverpool and Man United. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not that. It's because, oh, I was here that day, because they have the dates on them. That's yeah. why they sell so well. It's yeah. uh, Anyway, that's, that that is another longer conversation, and I, and you know, I I and it begins. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll move on to the next question then, so we don't get too sidelined. Um, but let's talk about the the the, the tournament from a footballing perspective, because you mentioned yeah. in the video that the Premier League players uh, played a, a sort of key role within the tournament. Um, do you think this, alongside the early years of the league itself, uh, could have been one of the first examples of the Premier League beginning to expand into what it is today in terms of popularity was it was it one of the first uh, times that I suppose globally we saw those big stars all from the same place uh, on the scene yeah I think I think in a way you could say that the 98 was World Cup was the first sort of it was the first post I mean it was basically it was the first Premier League World Cup you know it was the, the first World Cup that there had been one in 94 two years after uh, the Premier League's in invention but mm. uh, by that point um, nothing you know the Premier League was just the first division with a few bells and whistles you know the, mm. the, the kind of cultural change hadn't been embedded Arsene Wenger hadn't arrived because mm. that's of course one of the major reasons that the, the, that French side had such a Premier League feel was just because it had such an Arsenal feel mm. um, and and that that transition in itself was enough to make the, the the Premier League kind of so much more multicultural and and it became a major European league in a way that it hadn't been like it had been a major power in European football obviously because if you look at the the 70s the English league dominated the the European Cup in the late 70s early 80s um but it hadn't been a European league yeah. in in the sense of people from across the globe coming uh, and and playing there but but 98 was definitely a, a kind of you know, you had you had the the kind of class of ninety two United players in the England team, which were kind of they were kind of glamorous and skillful and uh, very sort of different. Although, of course, David Beckham became a massive pariah after mm. this World Cup. But you know, up to that point, they were like Skulls scored England's first goal, I think, against Tunisia, and um, this was it was they were a significant part of that England side. Um, then you would expect the Premier League to. You would expect the English league to inform the English side heavily, but but it was a kind of very skillful side, basically. 
and then and then you had France, who uh, Petit uh, Petit, who scored the final goal of the tournament. You had Vieira, who was you know extremely important to that team. I don't think either neither Blanc nor Barthez were in the Premier League yet by that point, but they both became Premier League players down the line. So you know there's, there were there were many links there. Yuri Djokaev, of course, you know many. Yeah, I I really like thinking about. Um... Uh, I suppose the, the 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 massive changes during the nineties because there are so many of them and in fact it struck me last night uh, I met um, with Alex Stewart who writes the tactics videos for for Umaxit and uh, we went to an event run by Opta who are a data uh, collection or co- I suppose they're a big data collector really but they're the biggest in in the UK and if you know when you're watching the football on Sky or BT or Match of the Day any of the stats you see have all been collected by Opta um, but they're always uh, trying to develop new metrics and and uh, you know push it, pushing how stats and numbers can inform football. Uh, you just reminded me of it when you said that Arsene Wenger hadn't quite arrived yet because one of the things they they mentioned that last night in the panel discussion as well. And uh, Opta actually started, I think it was in ninety seven or ninety six. So it really is like the you know the mid to late nineties really is this period of history uh, where I suppose if you're living at the time you might not know it yet but the arrival of Arsene Wenger as as we know was you know very significant on changing the way that manage, management worked in the Premier League and I think the arrival of things like Opta there was a big rush in the in the late 90s for managers to use numbers and use data to try and improve the performances of their players and One of th- uh, one of the things that I feel like um you know you were talking about a lack of how tribalism in football is kind of a bad thing one of the things I feel tribally obligated to point out at this point is that Alex Ferguson was also a massive pioneer, even mm-hmm. though he was much older and he wasn't a new arrival into the Premier League. His adaptability, um, I, was, I had a conversation with Michael Cox about this um, for my podcast the other day, and um, that's two plugs for the podcast in one episode, sorry. Was it, it was tell tell them accident. what it's called, Paul. They don't, they don't <laughs> it's know. called the United Rank Cars. I'll, I'll cut like, that out. If you like <laughs> if you like Manchester United you might like it. Um but the uh what he was he was talking about how um Wenger's kind of revolution was almost like one a one single point revolution, but Ferguson kind of revol- revolutionized and evolved tactics and also player recruitment because of mm. course one of the the absolute icons of kind of the uh, initial flush of European arrivals into the Premier League was a player who arrived several years before um, Arsene Wenger got there and that was Eric Cantona who uh, was not part of the World Cup in 1998 because he'd fallen out with everyone <laughs> because he's Eric Cantona. Um, well let's go back to, to, to France because we have been on many tangents on this episode more than normal Paul. Um, France won the tournament on home soil and Alex and I in last week's podcast briefly discussed the idea of home advantage but I'm interested to hear what, what you think about it because there there are a handful of, of, of examples of nations some with very long odds winning international tournaments on their own turf but I wonder what actually is home advantage and Alex you know gave me a couple of ideas about this last week and we've got a couple of comments as well that I'm going to look at look at in a moment but I just wonder what what you think that actually means home advantage well i think i think i could be wrong by thinking that documentary i was talking about earlier it's yuri jorkaev it's definitely one of the french players i think it's jorkaev who says when we walked out in the final we might have been to um anyway one of the two when we walked out in the final we knew we'd won because there were only 11 brazilians and there were thousands and thousands of us 
Mm. And, and, you know, that is, of course, a completely esoteric and ethereal thing. You, you couldn't quantify that. I, I Just for the South Africa 2010 World Cup video, which I, I wrote earlier this week, um, I, I did some... I happened to look at this subject because it occurred to me that Spain were the first first-time winners of the tournament. In 2010, they were the first first-time winners of the tournament since France in 98. But crucially, Spain in 2010 were the first first-time winners of the tournament, not in their own country, mm-hmm. since Brazil in like 1954 in Sweden. Mm. You know, so it's... it's um, Or 58, sorry. Um, it's such a... Almost every team that wins the the World Cup for the first time wins it for the first time in their own country, yeah. um, and that that to me is absolutely fascinating in terms of. And now, what home advantage is? Well, I mean, evidently, it's a psychological state, right? It has to be. Well, it is a psychological state, but there are, there are there are a few practical realities. First of all, everyone in the stadium that you're in speaks the same language as you, so you are at home. And being at home is an inherently comfortable feeling for humans. So it's like it's like this is your place where you're from, and and this is even before we're talking about uh, there being tens of thousands of people willing you on in that building. Now, um, or from speaking completely personally, I think that has an enormous vibrational effect on uh, humans' capacity to for- perform. No, you know, to be kind of loved and cherished and supported by thousands of people around you is going to uplift you. Um, But even just like, uh, you know how the car park works, you know where everything is, that there's, there's a whole sphere of your mind which can operate completely on automatic, which isn't the case for your opponent. Well, on that, I'll just jump in quickly and say there's a, a comment left on the last podcast um, on YouTube by Brain Sampler, which I thought was interesting. I thought I'd read, read it out. Uh, Brain Sampler says that home advantage in club football and in international football are two completely different things, which I think makes sense. In club football, there are many elements to home advantage, including the majority of fans are on your side. You are used to your own uh, pitch's specific size. Um, and in most cases, you know, the tactic your team is playing is fitted to that specific pitch size. And this is in, this is what just uh, uh, jogged me to, to, to drop this in here, Paul, is that on match day, you know, wake up in your own bed, not in unfamiliar surroundings, which I think is probably a really big, um, a, a really big impact. Um, and also for international football, uh, the way that Brain Sampler sees it, when playing an international tournament in your own country, your home advantage consists of the extra motivation that you hopefully get by playing for your country in your country. This can provide uh, for tremendous motivation. And you list a, you know, a few examples, um, but it can also put you under enormous pressure. And you list the example of, of Brazil in 2014, which was very interesting to me because that is, um, thought that, was thinking that last week, that that is sort of, the uh, the antithesis of uh, of of home advantage in that case, well, I, right? I think that you know the Brazilian national team and their relationship with the collective psyche of that country is absolutely fascinating, and I think it is really interesting that Brazil were the team that won the World Cup away from home before they ever well and never won it at home. It's been it's been at home for them twice, and both times it ended in utter calamity. Like, not just, it didn't just end in defeat and disappointment, but it ended in 
brutal, heart-rending defeat. So in 1950, we talked about this the other week, didn't we? In 1950, they lose the final group game, effectively, to Uruguay, only needing a draw, having gone 1-0 up. Like, the entire country is completely distraught about this. And then then you have um, easily the biggest humiliation on the global stage that any team has suffered in the last maybe maybe in the history of the world cup yeah. you know and and that isn't hyperbole i'm i'm talking as someone who's spent the last you know 8 weeks thinking a lot about the history of the world cup but i, yeah, I think might, you might be right yeah so so brazil and home advantage is a very specific subject home adva- home being at home definitely applies a degree of pressure um but i think when it works you know um we saw it in in Euro two thousand in Euro ninety six in England. So you're about to talk about how you're too young to remember the ninety eight <laughs> final, Joe. Yeah, I don't um, remember the ninety six Euros. Yeah, but it was it was like no other football tournament I've ever experienced because it was here, and and you know um, people had those flags on the car. You know, you see the flags on the car during football tournaments, um, the St George's Cross or whatever on car aerials. That was the first time it had ever happened. I'd never seen that before. And it was because and, and the, the England team definitely seemed to kind of walk a little taller than they'd ever done in other tournaments because hmm. they knew what was happening. They could see how much everyone was supporting them. That wasn't messages being relayed from a distance. It was a live environment. And and France in ninety eight definitely felt that the country was with them and and in a fascinating way too like in a way that you know France isn't necessarily a football country um in a way England unquestionably is rugby's massive in France and and there are kind of cultural implications about who likes football and who doesn't but as that tournament progressed France got more and more and more behind Le Bleu and by the end of it, like like it, like either Djokovic or Turam said, there were millions of them and only 11 Brazilians. See, I'm interested in the science behind that because I imagine that at some point in the uh, sci-fi future that that uh, can be commercialised, that feeling. Because I'm sure, presumably, as we said before, it's, it's a psychological state. It's the impact of those things uh, must have a must create a chemical reaction in the brain or release a certain amount of endorphins or put you in a certain psychological state, which I couldn't possibly begin to imagine uh, how it would work. Joe, um, this, um, this really highly depends on your definition of consciousness, you know, that's like, which, which I think, I'm not sure if you'll agree, I think might be a topic for another time. <laughs> Maybe it is. Well, all I'm saying, Paul, is that uh, I find it amazing how much better an athlete performing at the top of their, uh, you know, ability week in, week out can... Uh, up up the ante when situations like this happen and all this you know the same as this is the same story as people lifting cars when their children are trapped under them and you know yes absolutely i find it astonishing how there's extra gear there uh in the case that you need it and uh, i will be i would be astonished if in the future uh there was not um you know some way of commercializing that but yes we can we can move on now to me <laughs> the, talking the, about how I was a little bit too young to remember the nineteen ninety eight World Cup, Paul. I this don't is think very upsetting to you. This is very upsetting to me, Joe. I never, I don't think of you as being like a very, very young man. Well, I'm course. not, but I, I mean, I was. I would have been seven when this was going on. I was born in nineteen ninety. Mm. Um, so uh, what I, I mean, I dropped it in there as a, as a, as a little 
a little joke for you. But uh, really, the question is, is is asking you to run me through the Ronaldo situation because I, as I say, I don't really remember. I remember some of the football, but I, I wasn't, you know, watching enough at that age to know what was going on around the game. So I, don't, I um, have sort of heard of the Ronaldo thing before, but I've never really uh, researched it. Uh, so tell me, tell me what you know about it. And this is sorry, let's just preface this: this is Ronaldo starting and then not starting and then starting in the final. Uh, yeah, it was incredible. So the television footage is uh, the, the English television footage is available on YouTube. John Motson, who is a kind of um, he's sort of a broadcasting icon in England. He's, he was the BBC's. Um, main commentator there was him and Barry Davis and John Motson always got the biggest games even though Barry Davis was quite a lot better but anyway that's a a conversation for another time John Motson is at his best when he is very confused Um, and by at his best I mean (laughs) at his most endearing and he'd never seen anything like it in yeah. all his days. Yeah. They were handed a team sheet. The media were all handed a team sheet, uh, I think, 45 minutes before kickoff. And uh, Ronaldo's name was not on that team sheet. Uh, he'd, been, uh, he'd been dropped. Um, and this was this caused shockwaves. You know, Ronaldo was, um, if, if not for the fact that this had happened in the final, Ronaldo was set to be the player of the tournament, you know. Mm. Um, Zidane ended up being the player of the tournament, but uh, I that, by the way, is from memory. I'm not sure if he was literally given it, but, you know, history remembers 98 as the Zidane World Cup, but it very nearly remembered it as the Ronaldo World Cup. And um, so it was a huge shock. I think it's Ed- Eduardo, Edmundo, that, that plays instead of him. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But anyway... Um, then uh, a few moments later, we start to to hear that that the that the printed team sheet has actually been given out with the printed name crossed off and Ronaldo written in on all the team sheets. So Ronaldo, in fact, was going to start, um, and uh, and he did, and he was absolutely terrible. He looked practically catatonic. Like I said in the video, uh, the round the the various speculations on. Um, on what what was the cause of that have have literally continued to this day. No one really quite knows. There was talk of sponsors' pressure because Nike was sponsored sponsored the Brazilian national team, and Ronaldo was a huge deal to them. Um, so this was this was one of the theories. But but also that there was a question of a basically a nervous breakdown or some sort of physical health condition. I think he might have been in hospital the night before. You know, it was very um, it, it was a very contentious situation and absolutely without question he should not have played um because he just he just didn't look there you know there was there was they were playing with 10 and a bit men you know um it it was it was really sad in the end what started as a kind of amusing like oh what's going what is all this chaos actually sounds sad yeah it, it was a bit and and it it you know it very slightly takes away from the achievement just because you know, they didn't. It, France didn't beat the best Brazil side they possibly could have beaten. But of course, that's how World Cups work, isn't it? You know, you just you can only beat who's in front of you, as they say. Uh, well, I've got a final note, and I think we maybe already um, sort of accidentally covered this, but I'll ask you anyway, Paul, um, because you end the script by saying, and I, I very much like this, by the way. So I know it's it's not for me to say because we work together, but I liked this thing that, that Paul uh, you wrote at the end. Um, and you essentially said that you know football's job isn't isn't to change the world forever, but to change it for a moment. I think that's really true, um, and I think it's also often lost in in you know what we do as well. The sort of the analysis and and the, the carousel around football and the fact that 
you know, is the fact that, that football's purpose is entertainment and escapism and maybe as a secondary, you know, bringing people together as well, although it's, you know, not 100% necessary. Um, and, you know, would you agree that World Cups are often a welcome reminder of that? They, they, they are sort of set aside from uh, the league that's going on for most of the year. They are a special event, and even outside of any of the nationalism or tribalism that comes with it or anything like that, I think you find that there are people who who wouldn't watch football normally who still engage with the World Cup. And it, it is, for me... It's one of the, you know, final aspects of football. I think that is is sort of le- left untouched by the carousel. Even though there is a, obviously a massive uh, press presence around the World Cup, it still somehow for me manages to transcend uh, those things. Yeah, and I, I think I can I completely agree with all of that. And I'm really sorry to end this on a sour note, but it, it it's a tragedy that the World Cup has now you know it's a tragedy what's happened to fifa or what fifa have done because the world cup's lost its sense of innocence essentially you know you can't talk about russia 2018 qatar 2022 with any any of this kind of romanticism because i mean i'm not saying that there haven't been dodgy like the you know i, I think maybe even the 98 world cup there was some talk about the bidding process and certainly the the world cup uh, eight years later in in germany um was you know up up for serious discussion about how it came to be that, that yeah. they ended up there so you know it's it, that innocence has slightly died that's true and but, i was thinking the other day actually that i um will be very nearly 40 by the time that another World Cup happens after the uh, after the Qatar one. And um, I wonder if I'll be able to enjoy anything then, Paul. It's fine, Joe, just so to Is be absolutely clear. It's how completely How do you, how do you feel day to day? The World Cup last year was incredibly enjoyable. Not last year. See, I'm old. I don't even remember when the World Cup was. The World Cup in 2014, where I wasn't quite 40, but I was getting there, Mm -hmm. was extremely enjoyable and nice. Yeah, maybe Um, there's a new sort of lease of life. Yeah, it's fine, Joe. We're going to end on a more optimistic note and say that Mm. you will still be able to enjoy things at 40. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Still being the interesting word you've chosen there. Um... Paul, thank you very much for your time. You are, you will you, be everyone. on next week's podcast. It's the final week of the World Cup campaign. Um, so we will chat to you that. I mean, a sort of an early thanks to everyone uh, uh, who's 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 engaged and who's, who's watched it. We'll, we'll speak to you next week, Paul, and we'll, we'll be with Alex Stewart as well. So it'll be a sort of three-way podcast. It's very exciting. Awesome. See, See you, you later. Then.